we got a whole group here this time. It's not just you and me anymore, Travis. We're in the big times. I know. <laughs> Glad we we're able to get Cole involved here. Bring yeah, some, I'm yeah. excited. Bring some legit. One. Bring some legitimacy to our uh, endeavor. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Far. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. No. 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 I, I mean. Uh, so, well, this is the show, by the way. So, hello. Welcome to uh, the uh, the next episode of uh, the Complete. Uh, we're going to be doing the killing today, and we have a guest, which uh, Travis already uh, gave away. Who it is. Good job, what? Travis. I'm good at spoiling <laughs> things. It's Cole Rulane. Uh He's from uh, the Magic Lantern podcast and from uh, from Internet's the world over. Um, but uh, welcome, Cole. Thanks. Thanks for having me. I'm really glad to be with you guys. Yeah, we're really excited. We are both. Uh, I'll speak for Travis. We're both big fans of your podcast. It's a lot of fun to listen to. Uh, you run it with your wife, Erica, who. Um, is just as as uh, well spoken and knowledgeable on film as you, but uh, but it has has sort of different uh, interests or sort of niches that she gets into, and I, I think you guys really uh, fit together nicely in that way. It's kind of like two puzzle pieces that come together perfectly uh, right. for a, a really good listen. Thanks. Um, yeah. So uh, before we get into the. Um, the uh the movie uh if you just want to say a few things kind of introduce uh yourself most people i think who are listening to this have uh either heard you on other podcasts or on your own podcast but um you know just a brief introduction um and then we can uh talk a little bit about kubrick but if you want to just talk about yourself and kind of your movie interests and that sort of thing okay yeah um like you mentioned i do that show the magic lantern with my wife erica and it generally covers the films we love and the things we love about them. The idea was essentially we didn't want to get into being shoehorned or I guess hamstrung by having to do new releases and that sort of thing or do a bad movie show where snark was the priority. So we right. just focus on the things we really like to talk about. That's generally our editorial policy. We have a finite amount of time on this earth, and I would rather tell you about things I'm genuinely excited about. Uh, those things for me range sort of all over the place. Uh, when it comes to the art house end of the spectrum, I really like slow cinema and emotionally turbulent things. Anything from Lab Diaz to A Pitch Upon Where a Set of Cool to John Cassavetes. But I also like a ton of gonzo and genre stuff. A lot of Jalo is probably my strong suit aside from other classic stuff. Yeah, I just uh, I just dipped into a couple of uh, Jalo movies here uh, in Boston. They, they've been uh, showing some Mario Bava and then a few of the kind of films that he influenced. Um, I saw Blood and Black Lace and um, What Have You Done to Solange um, and enjoyed them both a lot. They, uh, they have just the right amount of... of weirdness, uh, but also kind of attention to detail that I really, uh, appreciated in films of, of that nature, because I think, uh, what really separates those movies from the average kind of movie like that is that they actually care about making a good movie and they, you know, you can see that, um, in what they put up on the screen that they're really, you know, trying to do something interesting with the material and, and taking it seriously, which, which, you know, I really appreciate. Nice. Was that over at the Brattle? Yeah. Yeah. They, they, uh, I think it might've just ended cause they're doing, uh, they're doing 
Desert Hearts uh, right now in a week, uh, you know, a week long yeah. uh, showing of that, which I'd love to get to, but I'm I'm not sure I'm going to be able to. I am really jealous that you got to see those on the big screen, especially Blood and Black Lace with all of that beautiful Technicolor. I bet it was incredible. Oh yeah. It was. It was really fun. I mean, the opening credits of that movie are amazing. But uh, I get we're we're getting uh, we're getting a little a little off off course here. But um, um, and yeah, I mean, this show obviously right now anyway, this season is about uh, Stanley Kubrick. Um, so uh, yeah, I, I was wondering if you could talk a little bit just about um, you know, Kubrick, how you came to his films, uh, sort of your relationship, how you track your relationship with, with his movies. Um, obviously, you know, even, even though I don't think Kubrick would fall into any of those categories that you just discussed, I think any cinephile kind of touches on Kubrick at one point or another. And, and because he worked in so many different genres, you, you eventually get to a film that, that he's, uh, made that impacts one genre or another that you are, um, particularly interested in. So if you just want to say a few words about that. Sure. Yeah. He, I'd say he definitely edges up on my slow cinema side of things, that deliberateness for sure. The way I initially came to him, I kind of classify certain experiences as freshman experiences, stuff like, you know, you discover Burroughs or Kerouac or that sort of thing. And that right. is kind of a watershed moment for me in cinema. There are those things. And it was a clockwork orange. I'm sure plenty of people have a similar experience with that, but I saw that on cable at my grandmother's house after school one day, probably when I was far too young to be seeing it, or at least <laughs> accurately process everything. And it just blew my mind. It had all of that danger at least to, like I said, a freshman that uh, I was really looking for at the time. I was trying to, you know, throw off the shackles of being allowed to watch certain things, the moving from kid cinema to adult cinema. And this was like doing that at a hundred miles an hour, but it was that. And then soon after discovering 2001, those were probably the first two that I encountered. And I sort of see them as opposite poles of his filmography. Obviously, one very breakneck and not reckless as far as filmmaking goes, but as far as the subject matter and the themes. And then the other one being so deliberate and quiet. So I felt like I was getting a, a huge range of experience from just these two films. And I just sort of worked my way out from there. I, I think the freshman thing is, is interesting Travis and I talked about that a little bit in terms of Kubrick being an entry point for us. And I think for a lot of people in terms of the, the kinds of films that, um, that kind of, you know, you, you start out really thinking about how films are put together. And these are the kinds of movies that wake you up to certain ways that directors use cinematography or editing or, uh, production design to, um, you know, kind of elevate a movie just beyond something that's entertainment for you. Um, and they're and, really uh, good, uh, they're really good examples of like films you can revisit at different stages of your life because 
where yeah. you might be interested in the first time you watch it, like in A Clockwork Orange. Sometimes when you're young, you're into that movie for the wrong reasons. And then later you watch it and you get the new meanings and new levels and new uh, nuances that you weren't picking up the very first time around, which is something I always appreciate as well, especially with this director. Yeah, well, that was actually what I was going to ask you, Cole. Like, do you feel like clock, A Clockwork Orange, it, it almost sounded like from your description that you feel like you've kind of move beyond that to certain to other Kubricks or to other films even um, beyond Kubrick do you feel like you don't have the same kind of response to that movie that you once did no I think Travis is on the money I I do have the same or at least a similar level of response it's just maybe two different things I don't feel like I've outgrown it for sure because like Travis mentioned it grows as you grow so I haven't relegated it to, uh, that was great then, but I have uh, moved on to bigger and better things. I still have a reaction to it every time I watch it. Yeah. I feel like that kind of separates for me, you know, uh, I think I watched that around the same time as I watched like Pulp Fiction as that was coming out. And, um, you know, a lot of those mid nineties kind of Tarantino esque films that I really responded to when I was a teenager but I look at now and kind of scoff at a little bit. I mean, I, I still see some of the interesting things that Tarantino did in Pulp Fiction and sort of revolutionary for that era of American cinema. But I kind of can't shake the feeling that it's a, a movie for a 13-year-old boy, not a, <laughs> not a grown man. And I don't feel that way necessarily when I watch uh, Clockwork Orange. Um, Although I haven't watched it in a, in quite a, a long time, probably in my thirties, I haven't seen seen the film. So, who knows? We'll we'll get there eventually. Um, but uh, but we're here here today to talk about the killing, um, which is uh, uh, Kubrick's kind of first. It's not a it's not a uh, blockbuster, big budget, uh, spectacular. Uh, it's not Ten Commandments, which was made around the same time or anything like that. But it it's, uh, it's certainly a, a, a it's a real movie in comparison to his previous films. Um, so uh, let's let's just get into it. Uh, unless uh, anybody else has anything, uh, speak now or forever hold your peace, kind of thing. No, right. no, let's go. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, so he, uh, so basically this was the movie that he made after Killer's Kiss. Um, he met, uh, I'll just do a quick, the quick Wikipedia summary of this uh, situation. He met um, a producer named James Harris. Uh, I, there's kind of like, the, the, I feel like it's a myth that they met playing chess in the park because there's like disputing accounts of it, but it's nice. It's a nice story. So let's go with it. Um, and, uh, they, they got along really well and decided they wanted to make a movie together. Um, and they, they found this book clean break, uh, that Kubrick decided that he wanted to adapt and they went to United artists with it. And they said, if they got a big, big enough star, they'd bankroll it. They got Sterling Hayden, which was a big enough star for the, for UA to bankroll half of the movie. <laughs> and, uh, they, raised the rest of the money, uh, decided that they couldn't make it for the budget that UA wanted. So they went out and raised more money. Um, and I think that was a, a good move because the, I think all of the money that they put into this movie shows up on screen. Um, he hired, uh, Jim Thompson, uh, to do, uh, to write the screenplay with him, which, uh, I'm sure we'll get into quite a bit as we get into the movie. Um, and, uh, the movie came out and got pretty good reviews and didn't, do particularly well, but, um, it, it 
got a good enough response from the people that that mattered that he was eventually able to continue on to uh to his next film um so uh let's just get, jump into it what do you guys uh what do you guys think of of uh stanley kubrick's the killing cool Travis you go Tra- first. Come okay on. I was gonna... you're <laughs> okay. the guest you're the guest i want to hear what you have to say did you see okay. this recently at the uh, noir noir city I did. I got to see it as part of Eddie Muller's Traveling Noir City 2017 Festival, and it was a real treat to see it on the big screen and to have it juxtaposed with just having seen Asphalt Jungle prior Hmm. to that, probably just the week before that. It was a really nice set of compare and contrast. Yeah, I love this movie, and especially, I guess, for... Not so much Kubrick, but all of the noir stalwarts that show up in it. I'm a huge fan of this cast as much as anything else. Yeah, it's a great cast. Um, yeah, this uh, Asphalt Jungle uh, was interesting. It came up, um, you know, the New York Times has all of their um, reviews now uh, online. So the original review of this movie uh, actually um, references the Asphalt Jungle and refers to the Asphalt Jungle as... Um, the classic, the asphalt jungle, which I thought was, was interesting considering it was only a, f- a few years after asphalt jungle was made. Um, but, uh, it, it sort of compared this unfavorably to that. Um, and I mean, I think that they're kind of, I think they do different things in a lot of ways. Um, but, uh, yeah, it, it's, it, it is a nice sort of compare and contrast, especially when you add in Rafifi to as well, um, to kind of, uh, make it that three for of the uh, the Criterion heist movies. Um, Travis, what do you uh, how do you how did you feel about the killing this time around? Uh, I I liked it a lot. I mean, the first time I saw it, I enjoyed it. I, I like caper heist films. You know, those are always a an easy sweet spot for me. You know, put a bunch of people in a room together trying to figure out how to rob someone, and I, I'll watch that all day. Um, but uh, no, I thought this this one's. Especially when now that we're doing things in order, we're watching him as he progresses. Uh, you could see the really big uh, just shift in overall uh, technical ability and uh, composition, story, editing. Everything is hitting all the right marks now. There isn't that awkward clunkiness that we've had in the last three movies where some of the shots are pretty but don't necessarily work in terms of the whole scene or the editing is really choppy or it doesn't match with the music being set out. Um, this movie really flows. It's tight and it's, uh, it moves quickly. Um, you don't like it go, it goes incredibly, it goes by incredibly quick. I watched it again today just to kind of make sure it was fresh in my head before we sat down together. And, uh, it's, uh, it's really enjoyable. I find it to be, uh, compared to other noirs, I find it to be less, severe or dark and more almost uh comedic in terms of the, all the ironies that take place in this movie just no one seems to be really like a real tough guy bad guy everyone seems to just be kind of like pathetically weak men not like you know tragically weak men <laughs> i don't know just like everyone seems to have just like a little problem that they have to take care of and this is where they're no one is seems to be a, like desperate Everyone seems to be just kind of like, I have this thing. Ah, man, it'd be so much easier if we just robbed this racetrack. Like, no one is on the edge of, like, if I don't rob this racetrack, they're going to kill me. It's all like, 
Ah, my wife needs some. My wife needs a better doctor. I should go to this. Uh, I should rob this guy. Or my other wife is not putting out for me anymore. I need to get her some money. No one seems to be desperate, so it lends a little bit more of a lightness to the to the film than a lot of noir films. But there is a lot of uh, noir tropes that are are mined really well in the film. Yeah, I mean, there's a lot. I definitely think this is kind of where Kubrick's kind of dark comedy begins. I mean, the even the end is uh, the scene of him trying to check the bag or trying to prevent them from checking the bag. I guess is pretty is a pretty funny scene. I mean, they ask him, you know, they they offer to insure it if they would if he would just tell them the value of what's inside the case. <laughs> um, you know, it's it's a pretty uh, it's it's a pretty funny scene, and obviously with the woman with the little dog, and she's calling it snookums and stuff like that. So. Uh, I'm jumping ahead of myself, but I think there is a lot of a lot of sort of dark humor in here that they were kind of having fun with. Um, well, let's let's start start from the top. I mean, uh, the the movie starts almost kind of in a documentary format um, at the racetrack, and and then it's got kind of like a dragnet uh, omniscient narrator, um, which I have mixed kind of mixed feelings about. I don't know how you guys feel about it, but it's it it felt it's, a little unnecessary it seemed to fit into kind of like the style of the time with like uh naked city and t-men and those when you know we're setting it up as a procedural and le- like you know that was the tone we're going for is how did they pull it off which you know it, it's it's interesting it's kind of like okay and it's it's it, you know it's nowadays it's kind of a clunky way to kind of set up all the exposition of who's who but it gets interesting at some points because he becomes a false narrator. He starts talking about things like this might be this person's last day on Earth. And you're like, wait a second. <laughs> but that's not true. What's going on here? Why, why is this guy lying to me now? Um, so I, f- I found that to be a little interesting. But yeah, I, I could see how, how it could be something you could cart away. But to keep in the kind of theme of the procedural, you know, having right. that time period and time frame really you know it really puts forth especially um you know when you're thinking about the time it was released and the way that they keep on repeating the same actions through different perspectives that need to have a uh, a uh, log of what's going on and what time it's happening at is probably very helpful for a uh, a less modern audience where yeah we could pick it up visually through cues and stuff like that nowadays um, I could see how that could be the thing that could, you know, kind of lead their hand down the garden path for how this how this film is structured, how how it's helpful. The uh, procedural thing is right on the money. Actually, it almost feels more like a procedural than a noir for quite a long time. And it's not just that omniscient narrator; it's that bombastic score as well. You've got the documentary style footage, like you mentioned, of that racetrack that actually feels more like a prison, the way that it's shot, than a racetrack. And that voiceover, I think, is particularly odd, at least for the first half of the film, because when you watch what's going on visually, Kubrick clearly trusts the audience to be able to process what is happening. But that voiceover slapped on top of it indicates a complete distrust of the audience to be able to follow the action. Yeah. It reminds me of, uh, I don't know if you guys have seen La Terra Trema, the Visconti film. Um, 
the, that movie is, you know, couldn't be further from this. Um, although it was a follow-up to a, uh, to a, uh, postman always rings twice adaptation, but, um, it's, uh, it's a, a sort of, uh, you know, melodrama about, um, poor fishermen in Italy. Uh, and the, the narration basically spells out all of the political elements that you can e quite easily read into the, the story as it's happening. Um, and it, it uh, you know, leading down the garden path, Travis, I think is a good way to describe it because it did feel like handholding, um, and actually with this movie, um, and I'll have a, a question related to this, uh, later in the, in the show, but, uh, they, when they finished the movie, they showed it to everybody and, um, both and Sterling, I think it was Sterling Hayden's agent was just horrified by the movie. And they thought that the, um, chronolog the, the out of order, um, structure of the film ruined Sterling Hayden's performance and that it was going to sort of be a terrible, uh, movie for his career. And Kubrick sort of took him to heart and went back and re-edited the film chronologically mm -hmm. and they watched the movie and they realized that it was terrible. And so they just put it back the way they were and, and sort of ignored the complaints. Um, and yeah, I mean, I think that that, just is an, an indication of how important that aspect of the movie is to, um, to people. And it, it, it feels like the narration is almost like a compromise of that, that it's like, okay, we need to present this story the way that we're presenting it. But in order for you to kind of, to, in order to make sure that you're going to get what we're doing here, we're going to stick this in here and, and, uh, and lay it all out. Yeah, I think Sterling Hazen's agent was actually threatening, like, lawsuit. Yeah. <laughs> like, that's how damaging he felt that uh, that weird, the weird uh, story structure damaged his performance. And, uh, yeah, it's, uh, it's interesting because uh, when it was released, um, it was, United Artists shelved it. They had no intention of releasing it anytime soon. They didn't know what to do with it. And then uh, one of their pictures uh, didn't make the uh, release date. Like, they, they went behind schedule or something like that. So they just shoved this into that hole. And so it had no build-up, no press before it, no trailers. <laughs> it had hmm. nothing. And it just got dumped in there. And so it didn't do well because it didn't have the backing like it usually does of kind of like a release. Um, but it did do well uh, critically. Like, uh... uh a lot of a lot of critical uh, sorry uh, critics uh, uh, favored the movie a lot liked how it was structured liked the way it was set up and liked the use of the characters a lot um, so yeah it's a it's definitely a it's a it's an odd one because I think that if it was given the chance and the proper kind of send off it probably might have done well box office wise with audiences but because it just wasn't given that chance I think it just kind of bombed and. You know, now it's one of those movies that a lot of people put, and they're like definitely in the top twenty noir lists. Um, but uh, no, it's a it's a good film. Yeah, yeah, then, you know, yeah. And then we'll, we'll 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 get into the noir noir aspect yeah. of it for sure. Um, I mean, I think one thing you know um, is that I feel like a lot a lot of focus is paid to the the heist and the out of order um, structure of the movie, but for the first pretty much 50 minutes of a, of an 80 minute movie, it's actually pretty straightforward narrative for the most part in terms of setting up all these, uh, all these guys and, 
their kind of angry, you know, their, their problems at home with their terrible women <laughs> that they have. <laughs> um, I mean, did, did you guys have kind of like a favorite of the, of those setups in any way? Well, it depends on what you mean as a favorite because <laughs> Marie Windsor is basically castration in a nightgown. Yes. <laughs> the, she, uh, I, I would even go farther than what Travis said about pathetically weak. I would say I would push that all the way over into likable for the most part for these guys. Yeah. Mike, the racetrack bartender, super likable guy. There's not a malicious motivation for most of them. Right. Except for Elisha Cook Jr. being that extremely pathetically weak cuckold and Marie Windsor being a shrew. Everyone else in this film is even pleasant i would say i'd hang out with them oh yeah the, the, the whole the whole badge room you could sit in that room and talk stuff with them all day and be super fun yeah um, i think Faye, the uh the sterling hayden sterling hayden's um uh wife or played by uh colin gray she, uh she'd be f nice enough to talk to but she i mean she's so over the top just kind of like uh Whatever you hates want, herself. Johnny. Yeah, I'm. I'm not. I'm not. I'm not pretty, and I'm not smart. Like it's like so over the top. It's just like I'm just here for you. I'm basically just the background to you. Um, I've got actually, a... It was interesting. She, he kind of ignored Kubrick. Ignored her on the set, and she had no idea what was going on. It was kind of like a, a shining kind of situation where he decided, okay, well, you were you are supposed to have no self-esteem whatsoever. So I'm going to completely ignore you during the making of this movie. I have a real soft spot when it comes to Colleen Gray, because she is the sweetheart of film noir to me, where you have all of those femme fatale, like Audrey Totter and Marie Windsor and Savage. Colleen Gray was that all American girl that she's in one of my all time favorites in Kansas city confidential, where she plays the smart, tough opposite of this character, but she's still as sweet and lovable as can be. So I'm a huge fan of hers. Well, she's really great in the final scenes, I think, where she doesn't really have much to say, but I think uh, she plays off of Sterling Hayden really well and sort of feels for him. Like, I almost feel when she loses the money more than when he loses the money mm -hmm. at the mm -hmm. end. Yeah, um, she, and I, she, I like that aspect yeah, of she, it. Yeah, she definitely... Uh... You could tell she's just sitting there going, "Oh, Johnny, you're fucking this all up. <laughs> this is your. This is not going the way it's supposed to be, dude. Just back it up. Nope, this is going bad. Oh, let's just get out of here, dude. <laughs> you could see it in her face. Like that's the moment where if she was a stronger character in the film, a stronger person, she would have said, "Johnny, just let them take the bag," and she would have taken over the situation because obviously he's frazzled at this point. But because she is that, you know, kind of a second fiddle to uh, Sterling Hayden's character that uh, she just lets things happen. And because of that, I think that's part of the failure, you know, of the of the, the final bit of that, that film. Not failure in terms of how it was done, but just as in their failure at their plan, you know. Yeah, well, I always wondered, like, I mean, they, they don't know it's you at this point. Like, just get in the car and start driving, it seems like. He has a car. No, they don't. So. They try to call a cab. The cab can't even stop for them. I love that. Three cabs well, but he, go he by. He has a car when he got, when he stuffs the money in the suitcase, right? So where, where does he do... Where, where does he take that car? 
part of the plan. And the narrator forgot <laughs> to tell you he he dumped it in some alley somewhere and took a cab. Right, right. <laughs> well, I so I do love the George and Sherry relationship, um, but I it makes absolutely no sense, and they they don't even really try to explain how these two people ended up together. You know, I think. Um, the uh, the guy who plays George, I, I forget his name right now. Elijah, Elijah Cook, Cook, is that his name? Yeah. Um, he He's so great in this movie, and he's perfect in that role. But I almost feel like if he was a more attractive guy, you would at least kind of get, okay, she saw this good-looking guy and thought that he was going to... Like, I don't really believe that, sh- that this sort of know-it-all, like, you know, heart of cyanide kind of lady would look at this guy... And this guy would say, you know, I'm going to be rich someday. And she'd be like, oh, that's probably true. You know, like, I'm not (laughs) sure I really believe that they would have ever ended up together and stayed together for five years. If I'm doing dream casting, although I love Elijah Cook Jr. an awful lot. Yeah, he's great. Yeah, and he's great in this, for sure. To to fulfill the qualities you're talking about, as far as noir guys go, you're looking for Dan Durier, a little taller, a little more handsome but still kind of a petulant baby face whiner that is never right. going to never quite going to make it. He embodies those aspects of that character. Yeah. And if you, if you make him a little worn down, it's like at one point you could kind of see, but he's just way past that point. Whereas I feel like with George here, it's like this guy has looked like this since he was born. Yeah. You know? <laughs> I don't know if you grab if you grab Elijah Cook from like Maltese Falcon when he was like a baby face tough, then uh, you know maybe you can see it. But uh, yeah, no, yeah. I can understand that. It's a it's a tough it's a tough pill to swallow with those two. But uh, man, you could see all of Jim Thompson's uh, writing pouring out of uh, her mouth the whole time she's in every scene she's in. Yeah, yeah, and from Sterling Hayden too when he catches her at the at the. Um... The meetup. That's definitely all Jim Thompson there um, coming out of Sterling Hayden's mouth as well. And he delivers it just so flawlessly. I mean, he's he's pretty uh, he's pretty great in this movie. The first place that the Thompson stuff seemed to stick out to me wasn't actually so much a dialogue thing, but when the beat cop is going to meet rather when the beat cop is going to meet the gambler that he is in debt to, it's that general level of that strata of unsavory types that just inhabit those dark corners of those bars. That was the Jim Thompson feeling for me right away before we even got to the venomous dialogue. Oh yeah. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. And that's where you get to see, uh, he, he rears his head later as one of the stick up men at the end of the movie. You get your first view of, uh, I can't remember his name, but he also plays the, uh, bartender from the shining. He's in that bar. Huh? Yeah, that bar is that that bar production design is really awesome and kind of reminded me of the club and killer's kiss in terms of the like you you're just immediately there and you know exactly what that bar is as soon as the camera starts creeping through it. Um I think that you know that they just did a really nice job with the atmosphere of that even before anybody says anything. But even even going back to what Cole was saying earlier about all these characters just being plain old likable. Even that, even that situation where it's like it's seedy, it's dark. You're expecting things to get dangerous for the cop. You know, he's into this gangster for some money because he's a gambler. And even then, the guy's like, "I'll, I'll give you a better loan. Let's extend it out. I'll give you some time." And he's like, "I don't have any money. 
I like to live a good life. I just spend it all. I don't have anything to save. Oh, well, I guess. <laughs> Maybe you can come up with the money in a couple weeks. He goes, yeah, I've got something in the works. I'll take care of it. Like, nothing, nothing ever seems... None of the characters, it, it doesn't ever seem that it is... Uh, you know, it is just a paramount that this thing goes off precisely so they can all solve their problems. Everyone seems that if it, even if it doesn't go off, it's kind of like life will just go on, and it's, which I think is perfectly summed up in Sterling Hayden's final line at the end of the movie, and he's just, <laughs> everything goes wrong, and she goes, we got to get out of here, and he's like, what's the difference? <laughs> he's just yeah. resigned, because it's, it's like every character in this movie is resigned. Like, they see a bit, bit of a better future, but pretty much they know that they're still going to be the same people and everything's going to be the same no matter what they do, which is what I find, you know, funny. So when we meet Mike and we go home with him and we see his sick wife, which the first time I saw this movie, and even the first time I watched it again for this viewing, uh, you know, I didn't read her as sick, like she needs a doctor. I read her as a drug addict, just sitting at home, getting high all day. <laughs> because she's got that needle sitting next to the bed. It's not like she had like a bunch of pill bottles, but there you go. This is the 50s. Maybe she's taking something very specific. But uh, I just read her as a drug addict sitting at home all day, and he's taking care of her habit and taking care of her. Because um, even then, you could still read it as, uh, don't worry, we'll get you a doctor. I'm going to make some money. Like, I'll put you in rehab, and it'll all be good again. <laughs> I had not, that had not occurred to us, dude. Because <laughs> there's, there's lots of coded things in this, you know, especially with, uh, oh, yeah. you know, Unger. Marvin. Yeah, yeah, Marvin Unger and his uh, his love for Johnny and, you know, wanting to run off with him. So oh, he, yeah, there's the nothing I wouldn't do for Johnny. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, I was wondering if you guys felt like, I mean, the the, the scene where, where Sterling Hayden comes in and says goodbye to him is so overtly a kind of, you know, he's he's basically telling him that he loves him and like, you know, let's run away together. Um, do you, I mean, in a situation like that, I think it was very clear what Kubrick intended with a scene like that. Did, do you think that the actors knew what they were doing or like, how do you, how, I guess I'm wondering like as Kubrick, how do you describe how you want them to behave in that scene without saying, okay, you're gay and you are in love with him. And he kind of knows it and is playing along to a certain degree. Go, you know, go. <laughs> <laughs> well, with Kubrick, it wouldn't surprise me if he just flat out said that. You know, just like that's how it is. Because, I mean, it's definitely how it reads to the point where Marvin is so upset with the fact that uh, Johnny did say no and kind of says, I'm going to run off with right. Faye and this is just how things are. Because, I mean, even when uh, Marvin comes in the room when he's saying goodbye to Faye, you know, he hasn't seen her in five years. They have a little tumble. He tells her his plan, and then he's going to say goodbye to her. He air kisses her because Marvin's in the room. And it's almost like, you know, he doesn't give her a kiss. Like, I miss you. I, you know, go go get the other part of this plan rolling while I uh, figure stuff out here. When Marvin walks in the room, like, he gives her an air kiss and uh, sends her on her way, which I'm, which, you know, to me, I'm just like, Oh, is he like just playing into like stringing Marvin along for the money he has to make this heist work, or is does he also kind of care what Marvin thinks? You know, there's a very, 
I think in the in the movie, the the documentary, the celluloid closet, they bring this movie up as a reference, as you know, everyone knew that this was gay, this was about a gay man. Like there was no, you know, the only, you know, if you were gay, you knew what this story was, and uh, you know, the people, the squares who weren't in on the in on the thing, you know, could read it as that paternal fatherly love for right. his boy but they're not that far in age difference for that to be an actual thing well i guess i wonder if the intention was for sterling hayden to be gay as well i mean with the the air kiss i wonder you know is it was it an actual situation where you know even if he wasn't necessarily romantically interested in this older guy that he um you know recognized himself in that and so therefore you know that was kind of the way he saw it as a sort of mentor relationship. Uh, but, and you know, while, while this older guy actually was interested in having a romantic relationship, um, uh, you know, I, I, I hadn't, it hadn't really, I hadn't really thought about it until you mentioned the air kiss, but I, I, that's also seems like it would be a possibility. I mean, especially considering how just sort of, uh, sort of limp, his uh his wife is in this movie i mean that you know there's not really much there to to grab onto no i mean colleen colleen gray makes the perfect beard because she's just so into him and he doesn't have to be too effectual i mean because then later you know in a typical in a you know kind of a stereotypical noir fashion the femme fatale throws herself at the more powerful male lead and he has that opportunity to, you know, ravish her on the bed or something like that. You know, that twist where he ends up going with the wrong girl and ruins the plan by getting abroad involved kind of thing. Uh, and he doesn't. He just straight up is like, nope. Yeah, when <laughs> he's got her number from the very beginning. Like, yeah, he's like, nope, not happening. Yeah, I mean, he knows exactly who she is uh, and mm. lays it all out immediately after meeting her. Um in his sort of like classic uh kind of misogynistic uh noir style of like i know your type um but maybe he was referring to all women in that situation i don't know <laughs> when i watched this interaction with johnny and marvin the goodbye scene i if we're going strictly based on what you see in the performances there's an incredible amount of tenderness in what sterling hayden is doing sitting on that bed and it's I see that what uh, Travis is saying though there's a there's also a mixture of being a really good manager of this team right and keeping it, everyone corralled and knowing what motivates each one of them and keeping them pointed at you know eyes on the prize so whether or not their relationship was or could potentially be consummated I guess for lack of a better term he is at least demonstrating genuine feeling for this guy it seems like i don't know whether that is because he does feel the paternal bond or he sees him as a potential lover but he is definitely i think genuinely doing both things exhibiting that feeling that he truly feels and managing one of the points on the triangle right yeah well i mean i do think i agree in that i think his emotion in that scene is one of the sort of most straightforwardly honest uh you know moments of of the movie where it's it's clear that whatever their affection whatever's behind their affection for each other they have 
genuine affection for each other um, yeah, in that I mean, in that moment. That scene plays a greater emotion and affection than any scene he plays with uh, Faye. Um, oh yeah, you know that that is that is a that is something that is real a relationship that is real, and then to continue our uh, our uh, our Johnny Marvin ship. Um, you know, fiction forward, you know, and then, you know, Marvin does the classic spurned lover thing, shows up drunk to the party, and uh, could possibly ruin Johnny's uh, Johnny's score at that point. He shows up later in the, you know, in the well-machinated, everything's going like clockwork, there's Marvin staggering around drunk at the racetrack. Um, right. Which, which, you know, accidentally ends up being the thing that saves Johnny from that security guard that pulls a gun on him. Yeah, I mean they throw in. Uh, we're we're jumping over the two two recruits here, but they throw in all these little things to uh, to kind of everybody who is in who's involved in the heist has something weird happen that that wasn't supposed to happen that they you know manage to get around. Whether it's trying to open the roses to put them in water or having the woman run out of the uh, the building to try to get the police officer. Um, to come and and help her. Um, And I I, I like all of those things. I think they're all done really well, but I don't feel like you ever truly buy that any of them are going to be a problem because in a way, unlike a a movie like Rafifi where the, the heist, it always feels like something is, is going to go wrong. Like they're not going, this thing is crazy. This plot, this plan is ridiculous. There's no way they can possibly pull this off. Um, I don't feel, I feel like you're, you're sort of watching, you know, a, a finely tuned, beautiful machine during the heist here. And there's, it's not suspenseful in any way. I don't, I don't mean that in a negative sense, but I feel like, um, just as much as there's, uh, the fate of the, the heist not working out that, that at the end of this movie, they're all going to be caught or dead or whatever, you know, it's going to, it's not going to be a happy ending for them. Uh, like in all of these heist movies, um, that, that there's just as much fate in them actually pulling off the heist, which I don't feel like is necessarily true in, in all of the films like this. Yeah, I guess that, I guess that kind of goes in, in, in hand in hand with what I was saying about uh, no one's in any sort of dire straits that this has to work out for them, that they would do something desperate to make it happen. And so because of that, it does feel like more like an Ocean's Eleven where you're happy with these guys and you can't wait to see them, you know, pull off this heist because it's well-planned, well-thought-out. You're a part of all the pieces and parts. Everyone's very affable and likable. You know, even if we go through... The secondary characters that they pick up, uh, the wrestler who hangs out at a chess club and spouts uh, this old folksy wisdom that you can barely understand. Um, <laughs> you know, I, I you know he's speaking these long, long little like monologues, and I'm just like, I have no idea what that guy said, but he's all right in my book. Um, and then so you know, I'll tell you, I'll tell you who, I'll tell you who that reminded me of. Uh, that like really reminded me of. Um, uh, what's his name? Uh, Benicio del Toro. No, although yes, <laughs> no, it really reminded me of Mongo in Blazing Saddles. Mm. Like I felt like he was, you know, he he's got these like 
crazy uh like pearls of philosophy that he's tossing out there but you know at Mongo the end of the day, just, just like, in game of yes life. exactly and and when they were writing blazing saddles like richard pryor wrote all of the mongo lines that was the only thing he wanted to do like they kept trying to get him to write race jokes so that they could feel more comfortable about them <laughs> but all he wanted to do he's like anyway back on mongo like i think it would be really <laughs> funny if he said this and I feel like Jim Thompson, like, must have just loved to, to do that. Like, he was like, okay, we're going to have this wrestler, and he's going to, like, say all this, like, m- m- philosophical mumbo-jumbo. <laughs> it's going to be great. And then, there now, was, now and then the fight, he's just, wrestler, his shirt's right? going to fall off. Oh, yeah, totally, yeah. He's like... Colacoarian uh, or something like yeah, that? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, he was so perfect in the role. He and I like also George feel like the... the That was exactly what I thought the first time I saw this, that long lineage of bald, hairy-backed men who chew (laughs) turnbuckles in half. Yeah, and just their shirt falls off immediately. Oh, that was classic. When his shirt got ripped in half right down the middle, I was like, yeah, this is on. (laughs) That was good stuff. Well, the other guy he picks picks up is is uh, is Timothy Carey, um, or as I like to call him, John Chaturro Beta, uh, <laughs> and uh, he's. I mean, that scene is so great with the two of them, who obviously like go on to to I, you know some a couple of really great roles in later Kubrick movies, but where he's he's holding the puppy um, during at the at the shootout at the shooting range in in back of his house. Um, that's just a really great great sequence. I mean, I love every minute of screen time that he's in this movie. Timothy Carey is an absolute genius. I love him in everything I've ever seen. And when I hear people complain about contemporary actors like Jeremy Davies or somebody like that, saying that they're just a collection of ticks, I always just, it's like, man, you have no idea. You know, I'm going to play this scene like my jaw is wired shut. Oh, yeah. Give it a shout. Sure. (laughs) And not just suggesting that I'm going to do that. I'm just going to do that, whether you want me to or not. So you've got to deal with that. Yeah, it's, it's great. He definitely becomes one of the more memorable characters in the film because, you know, he is, you can see that there is something very dangerous. Like, he's the only character that I feel could have ruined everything by doing something, you know, much more dangerous than what he did. But he is the crazy guy that would be hired to go shoot a horse at a racetrack during the middle of a race. Yeah. And he doesn't, I mean, there, there was no way that he would get out of there. And, and yet he just, because I feel like because it's Timothy Carey, you believe that he would believe that he could get away with it. You know, like it's, it, it, that performance I think really sells the situation that he ends up in. And then of course, with the, the sort of proto Kubrick, um, like the, you know, falling over on the, um, on the horseshoe that, uh, had been tossed on the ground. Um, uh, it's yes. just a, a nice little touch of irony for his final moment. Yeah. And our first, our first symbol of everything, our luck is run out and everything's going right. to go wrong. Yeah. That's a, it's, it's, it's an interesting scene, especially the, the relationship he has with the uh, the security guard watching the gate that lets him in. Uh, you know, they visit each other. They, they have three conversations in which uh, they slowly, you know, you could see him 
making the effort to keep this guy happy because he wants to pull off his job, but then realizing he has to be mean to get rid of this guy. And he just goes for the most horribly racist way to deal with this guy, who's a, he's a war veteran. He lost a leg in the war, and he did him a solid by letting him in and came over and was being nice to him. And now he's just like, all right, I have to beat this dog so it'll go away because obviously it's not getting the point. And it's just, uh, it becomes so vicious that moment that, you know, it, it's, it's needed that he's, <laughs> that he's the, he's the one who gets killed right away. Well, let's, uh, let's talk about the heist a little bit. Um, oh, wait, we get, we forgot one piece. We forgot one okay. person. We forgot about Val, uh, Sherry's, uh, lover. Oh yeah. Who's, uh, who's the other reason why this is all going to go south at some point or who I like to call dark Ruffalo. <laughs> he looks like Mark Ruffalo, but he's a little darker. <laughs> yeah, I mean that. You know, he's he just. I feel like a guy like that just shows up in in these movies. You know, there's just always a guy like that. There's always a juvenile lead that is often played by a rising pop star at the time that they had to somehow shoehorn into this production. Right. As long as he's handsome and can recite a few lines then okay we're gonna stick him up there in front of the camera although this guy acquits himself considerably better than that but you're right yeah this is a device that pops up again and again in all of these in every genre picture from that time period not just crime pictures yeah the only thing i really like about his character i would say is that he is also obviously uh two-timing sherry and is not at all interested in her um, which again, I did, I have no idea why he's even with her in the first place, but I do like that touch of that. It wasn't just that, you know, that she's got this guy on the side and they're in love and they're going to steal this money and get away. Like he's out not talking to, you know, not, not calling her back just as much as she is not interested in her husband. Um, it makes her just like a little bit sadder and him a little bit more kind of interesting for throwing a wrench into the matter because he's really not associated in any way. He's just going to ruin everybody's day. Oh yeah. Um, and he treats her like Sherry treats George. Like totally. The same sort of contempt and silly lines and yeah, sure baby, I'll take care of you. In a, in a different version of this film, uh, if, you know, if him and his buddy got away with the, the cash, you know, Sherry still would never have been picked up from that apartment building. She'd be sitting there on her suitcase the whole time, and he would have been gone. Well, are we heist? Are we heisting now? Let's do it. Let's put these pieces together. <laughs> um, well, so I, I mean, I I think obviously this is the kind of uh, big big stretch of the movie, um, and I mean, I think that it's interesting to me how you know I, this is this was probably I watched it it. Um, I watched it a couple of weeks ago and then I watched it again, um, uh, on Friday. I was really only planning to watch, uh, bits and pieces, but this movie is just so easy to watch, um, that I ended up watching the whole thing again. But I think, uh, this heist, it, it, it it's amazing to me. It's kind of how rewatchable it is, even though at a certain point you get, uh, it's not that complex of a sequence or the, the narrative is interesting the way that they put it together, but it's not that weird. Um, and yet it's just always so fun to watch cause it's so well put together. Um, especially like the, the contrast between the documentary footage and the, um, and what's happening behind the scenes, 
the way they use the loudspeaker to, um, you know, match times and to kind of give you a sense of when everything is happening. Uh, it's just sort of all really effortless. And I think this is really where Kubrick becomes Kubrick is in this sequence because everything is so controlled and is so, um, kind of not, not detached, but like the, you can see that hand above kind of making this all go so smoothly. It's the, it's the clock make the, you know, the clockmaker at, at his finest kind of in this sequence. Yeah, definitely. You can tell that, uh, he's finally getting to have all the resources to be as precise as he would like to be. Um, and who we end up seeing later in his career as being a person known for uh, doing things over and over again until he gets it exactly right. Um, you can definitely see this film as, uh, you know, a very easy um, synopsis, of, uh, synopsis of who Kubrick is as a director, someone who likes to put all of his pieces in clockwork order and then, uh, you know, struggle to maintain and keep it together so it doesn't fall apart at the end, which a lot of times, you know, it is that uh, Sisyphean effort of constantly trying to do the same thing and just having it fail. Um, you know, as a director, he's constantly working hard to keep the pieces uh, exactly how he wants them to be and have complete control over everything, but it's, you know... It's a, it's a folly to think that you have control over anything. And a lot of his films from here on out have that sense of, you know, man's uh, foolish notions that he is in control of any given situation. And this is a really good, uh, uh, more of a lighthearted uh, way of, of showing all that happening. The thing I like most about this high sequence is how much it takes true advantage of all the facets of Sterling Hayden's personality. In films prior to this, you know, he's always the muscle. He's the big lug, the corn-fed, hulking guy. He's still that. He's still an extremely powerful and muscular force in this because of this high sequence. The film itself is just a brisk 85 minutes. And then this high sequence is a distillation even further of that. And you get to see Hayden as both muscle and brains operating simultaneously, which was, I think, a much more accurate reflection of who he was. Again, I'm a big fan of the guy. But he was more of a renaissance man than people gave him credit for. Even though he, you know, he was prone to lose control of himself later in life. But he was a really brilliant, imaginative guy. And he didn't get to exhibit that very often in these tough guy roles that's what I love to see in this with him as the brains of the operation as well. Yeah. It's a, it is, is a different, it's a different bit for him. Cause yeah, he is usually the, you know, the heavy, uh, the guy who's, you know, breaking fingers and breaking legs and stuff like that. And here you get to see him both be the thinker of the group, making sure all the pieces lay in. And then we have those, that emotional, that emotional bit with him, that we, you know, don't usually get in films where he's with uh, Marvin for that scene. It is, it is a nice change of pace for him, and I can see why, um, you know, his agent might have been really bummed out with the film because it isn't his normal stuff, um, you know. And you could see, oh, geez, maybe this is going too far and away from what he's been good at or what he's been being cast at 
recently. Um, there's a great uh, I I have the uh, the Criterion version of this, and there's a really great interview with him uh, talking about his kind of career in general, and he talks about that about uh, you know being cast as the heavy and then getting to break out for this role, and then he talks about being in a cowboy movie right after this, in which he had no idea what he was doing. You're constantly asking why he was in this movie because he was just so out of his element, and it was such a a foreign thing to him that he just he just thought he was ruining the whole the whole entire production because he just wasn't fit for that. So the 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 other thing about this heist sequence uh, that I wanted to mention is obviously this is the kind of uh, first appearance of masks in uh, Stanley Kubrick's filmography. Um, he obviously puts on the, uh, the funny looking kind of, I guess it's like a clown kind of mask. I'm not sure exactly what type of mask it is. A clown hobo serial yeah. killer mask. <laughs> Emmett Kelly. Isn't it an Emmett Kelly uh, mask? Not quite. It's close, but not quite. So obviously he wasn't aware that, um, you know, 40 years later he would make eyes wide shut. But, um, I, I guess, I'm wondering if you guys have any thoughts on kind of like Kubrick's use of masks in his films. I mean, they, they do pop up in a number of the films um, and, uh, and sort of the use of the mask here and kind of why you think he chose that particular mask for this moment. I'm not sure why he chose that particular mask, but I can tell you that, and this comes probably more from my experience with horror films than, than Kubrick's, experience necessarily the mask is a liberating thing when you get inside that thing your mind completely changes and it also comes from my tradition of dressing up for things as halloween so i (laughs) i have inhabited this mindset when you put that mask on you are free to be whatever it is that you are portraying you are no longer bound by traditional moralities and conventions and all of your normal thought processes it affects you inside as much as it does to the people who are observing you externally. It's a huge shift in philosophy. It feels like just to put that thing on and become something else. So it makes it much easier to perform these actions that may be typically far outside the norm of anything you would ever otherwise do. And as far as masks in film noir goes, this one and the masks from Kansas city confidential tied one, a one B for me. I love both of these. Travis, what do you think? Yeah, uh, you know, I, 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 I completely agree with what Cole was saying. I mean, even, like, you go to the opposite side of that, that's also kind of like in the superhero trope. I'm a big comic book guy, and part of that wearing a mask is that an- a- anonymity, which allows you to be either a different you or the better version of you or the darker version of you. And you're allowed to kind of have that freedom to be something different and then i think i can totally see kubrick picking that mask uh just for the novelty of it being a clown mask which you know this is probably before we started making clowns really creepy and horrible all the time even though lon cheney did his part to make clowns horrifying uh back in the day but uh you know i can see it being like you know that childish kids mask which uh you know would uh, pretty much uh throw the guards off completely and make kubrick laugh having it be such just a weird awkward funny clown mask Uh, you know i can see that as you know 
being brought a choice of six masks or whatever by his art director, and he just chooses the one that thing he thinks is the most bizarre and fun one. I guess there's also kind of like the um, the the like it, along with the fact that you can be anybody or you're you can become a different person. There's kind of like a, a liberation to it, and that's always been kind of the push and pull of Kubrick's films is that, that, you know, the, the, uh, freeing humanity or constraining humanity and that, um, that battle between those two things. And, uh, I mean, you know, he, he puts on this mask to basically liberate himself from needing money and needing to be in this grind that he's been in. Um, but in reality, what he does when he puts on that mask is, you know, lead him to his ultimate fate of being put away for probably for good. Um, so I, I do think it, it, it makes sense within the context of this movie. And it also makes sense as you move forward into the rest of his filmography, um, that he would be interested in something like that, that, um, you know, sort of shields your your own personal humanity and turns you into every man in, in, in some ways. Um, but ultimately, uh, can't kind of free you from the, the controls that, you, that have been placed on you either by yourself or by society at large. It's a bit of the Pagliacci too, right? The tragic clown, which he, you know, they use as well in uh, clockwork orange and, you know, they use more of a, less of that type of mask and eyes wide shut. They use more of a kind of, uh, I'm trying to remember the name of that mask and that like, a. Nah, oh yeah. It's kind of like a Phantom of the Opera. Um, yeah. There's a, a Harlequin mask. Harlequin. Yeah. Yeah. There yeah. you go. But yeah. Yeah. Because they, he definitely use that again. And even if you want to go to, uh, <clears throat> to Barry Lyndon, you know, when he gets into that phase of his, uh, of his life in which he's wearing the, uh, the powdered wigs and pink and the white makeup and the, uh, and the, uh, beauty marks on his face. He is also wearing a mask to fit into a different part of society. He's not usually allowed into, um, which allows him to, you know, have different access to different worlds, which, uh, all relates to that same, that same concept we're talking about with masks. Yeah, I mean, I guess the the tragic clown thing kind of ties directly into Sherry's final lines. We're jumping, I'm jumping ahead a little bit above uh, mm. beyond the shootout. We can double back to that, but uh, but just her her final line, which is so Jim Thompson, and it's so great. Uh, he, she said she, when she gets shot, she says, "It isn't fair. I never had anybody but you. Not a real husband, not even a man. Just a bad joke without a punchline." <laughs> Burning George till the very end, till the <laughs> <Exactly>. literal <laughs> last breath. And I mean, uh, she's a, she really breath. is. Such, yeah, I mean, she really is such a such a great. I mean, she's she's unrelentingly uh, just sort of not. I, I don't want to say um, even go so far as misogynistic, but like she's she's just the 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 perfect representation of just evil women woman that you could put into a movie and. Um, but she, she really, she plays it so well, like it, it, she doesn't seem one dimensional, even though pretty much everything that comes out of her mouth is just horrible. Um, she just, she's, she, I think she, she does a really great, great job in this role. 
No, she does. Yeah, and so we go through the heist now. We, we're, all the pieces are together. Um, everyone plays their part exactly how it's supposed to be played. Uh, our muscle causes a distraction, which allows Johnny to sneak out back, open door from uh, uh, George, who uh, opened it for him, goes upstairs, the gun stored in the locker from where uh, Mike left it for him, uh, pulls off the crime, throws the bag out the window, does a quick change of clothes, which made me laugh and think of the Bill Murray movie, Quick Change. Um, you know, tosses the stuff outside and walks right out the door, blends in with the crowd. And then there's that one moment of tension where uh, the security guard pulls a gun on him because he came from a, uh, a, uh, restricted area. And then that's when, uh, Mervin walks by, Marvin walks by, drunk, bumps into the guy, distracts him just enough for, uh, Sterling Hayden to sock him one across the jaw and, uh, just leave the scene. And, uh, Everything is going exactly to plan, and everything is going exactly how they laid it out. So we think we're getting away with the perfect crime at this point. And then there comes Val. (laughs) (laughs) Who you haven't seen for so long, you almost forget that he is a part of this. Yeah, I mean, I I really like the scene just with the guys sitting there before he busts in. Um, There's some, some... great dialogue in there and like you guys said i mean he, you really start to kind of like these guys i mean you really you hope he shows up. i mean you, you know sterling hayden's a solid dude so you know he's going to show up with the bag he's not running late because he bailed out on them but you want them to get away with it at this point and so when he comes bursting in it's kind of uh it it's kind of exciting when george you know in in the parlance of these kinds of movies grows a pair and comes right in and just takes them out. For unfortunately for him, he doesn't do it efficiently enough to prevent them from mowing down everybody else in the place. Yeah, it's, no, it's, it's, it's like it's, I'm sorry. Go ahead, Travis. No, oh, I was going to say it's a yeah. It's a you know he spent the whole movie being told by his wife that he's got no dick, and then he comes out swinging a big one right there at, the, <laughs> at that moment where he's needed. You know. Uh, his impotence finally uh, happening, which he then displays later when he goes home and plugs his wife as well, um, you know, just showing her who's who's what, and, you know, he has enough energy to get home to do that. And it's kind of nice. There's a nice visual echo, too, because uh, uh, the first time they were, they were all together in this meet-out, meet this hangout at, uh, Unger, uh, at Marvin's place, um, George is let out uh, swaying and staggering because he took a pretty good slapping from uh, Randy, the cop. And then this time, it's the same thing. He exits and he's swaying and he's not on his feet because he's been hit, he's been shot, and he's not doing too well. And so it's the same kind of visual language Kubrick's using twice to uh, uh, help convey an idea or a thought and uh, pre- uh give you a little visual clue to what's going to happen later in the film. You know, one of those guys is going to be carried out and then, uh, you know, it's uh, it works out really well, but, uh, Cole, what are you going to say? I really love this section and I find it a lot more interesting than the actual heist itself. Though I do like to watch the heist. I like to watch them set up the game of mousetrap and then roll the thing and everything falls into place. But the heist isn't as interesting like Matt said, because there's really no tension. There's no what's going to happen. How is this going to go off the rails? Where this payoff bloodbath has that in spades. Everything mm. is falling completely apart. 
This is another probably of the most Jim Thompson moments for me. Everyone's shot in the face. And this switch all of a sudden from primarily these beautiful tracking shots to this great handheld surveying of all these bodies scattered around the apartment. Very gruesome for its time. Yeah, extremely grisly tableau and extremely beautifully shot. So this section to me is much more interesting than anything that happens at the racetrack. Yeah, yeah, there's sure. there's definitely, um, you know, I think they even mention in this uh, supplement for Killer's Kiss um, the Ouija influence um, in that film, and th- this this shot recalled it for me as well. Like there, uh, there's very few movies that I can think of from this era where you really um, get that sense of just like the the horribleness of this crime uh, that that happened, and all of a sudden you're not watching, you know, a fun kind of heisty, you know, oh, like Ocean's Eleven type movie. You're, you know, you're in this and like you are now the people who are going to stumble upon this, you know, have it, have to call the police. And, you know, there's uh, six or seven people laying there dead uh, and, you know, they'll have to piece together what went wrong. Um, It's, it, it is very striking. And the point of view shot is, is, is so different from what came before it. Yeah, for sure. Like, uh, everything's been so subjective and it's procedural. You had a voice, an omniscient voice telling you what's going on and you had everything from a bit of a distance. And when you did have close ups, it was during intimate things, but everything was subjective. It wasn't one person's perspective. And then to jump into George's POV at that moment really kind of brings it home and ties it emotionally to you, the viewer, looking at the carnage as opposed to you still looking at it subjectively, you're looking at it objectively, you're being thrust into the scene a little bit more intimately. Um, And like the first time I saw it, I thought it was just blood spray on George's face. But then like on this viewing, watching it on Blu-ray for the first time, you know, I could see that it was like buckshot holes in his face. You know, like I didn't realize how just gory and grisly it actually was until, you know, seeing it in a higher definition and I could really kind of tell what was going on. Um, yeah, it was really, it was really grisly. And yeah, I can, that, that, uh, tie to Ouija and his, uh, you know, his, uh, crime scene photography that he was doing, I could definitely see an influence there with that stuff. Um, uh, Kubrick, it was a good pairing, uh, the cinematographer that they used for this film. Um, oh, is his name escaping me? Oh, Lucian Ballard. There we go. Um. He, he did a really good job of uh, having Kubrick's sensibilities come through um, and also bringing a, a more thoughtful uh, approach to how it would be edited later so things were a little bit matching more. Um, you could tell it was something with an experience, but from what I've read about the production, they didn't get along very well because Kubrick wanted to do more weird, interesting stuff and Lucian Ballard came from an old-school Hollywood style, and he was always trying to pull the camera further away or, you know, make things a little less intimate or odd. And I could I could definitely see that that would be one of those shots where probably he wouldn't want it to go handheld and make it a POV, and Kubrick definitely fought to get that kind of shot made because it is definitely uh, something that stands out in the entire film. Yeah, there's a um, there's a story about Kubrick uh, 
and and the cinematographer um, sort of butting heads early on. Um, they had set up a Kubrick had set up a tracking shot. I think it, I think it's the the early shot where they're going kind of through the walls of the uh, the apartment where Sterling Hayden's character is um, with uh, with Colleen Gray. Um, and he sort of walked away to go do something else and came back and, and Ballard had pulled the camera back to use a 50 millimeter lens instead of a 25 to, because Kubrick wanted some distortion on the shot and Kubrick basically just said, put the camera back where it was or you're fired. And he put it back where it was. And then they had a more, uh, sort of, uh, collaborative working relationship after that, but Kubrick really felt like he needed to kind of assert himself in that moment. And, uh, and we, we haven't really talked about sort of the fluidity of the camera in this movie. Um, but it's a, to me, this is a very, very much a young man's movie. Um, you know, I mean, he wants to do all sorts of fun things, whether it's that tracking shot through the walls or the scene, the first shot in the chess club where, you see Sterling Hayden come through the door and the camera pulls back to reveal that you're at, you've actually been looking in a mirror the whole time. Um, and mm. you know, and he does that, I think partially just, um, for economy because then you get to have him come through the door and you get to just pull back to follow him into this place. But he's also doing it to show off that he knows, you know, how to pull off a shot like that. And it's a fun thing to look at. I think that's, very much like a young person's kind of uh, young director's kind of thing of uh, showing all of the things that they can do. And I think this POV shot is like that. Um, but at the same time, I think it really fits so perfectly into the narrative in that moment that it comes off uh, very well kind of within the context of um, what what's happening in the movie. It's not just a uh, oh, I'm going to go shaky cam here because uh, it's fun to do. No, for sure. I agree. I agree completely. Like there is that sense that uh, he he has intention behind what he wants to do. And I think that has to do with everything's going smooth for these guys all the way up until it doesn't. And that's when the camera style changes. That's where things become uh, that POV, the, the camera stops sliding around every place and becomes either static or with like a bit of a canted or Dutch angle or um, everything becomes tighter. There's less room to move around after the heist goes wrong um, in the frame. And I think that's a very conscious decision that uh, he made, uh, wanting to have that fluid cameras moving everywhere. We're getting every place. We're getting to see everything and it's easy. And then once that once that uh, that burst of violence happens, and we go into that POV, the style of the camera changes completely from there on out. And also, is it not just a technical thing, but him underlining that canny Kubrick manipulation where we are now complicit as an audience? The stakes were not high. It was a hmm. breezy thing prior to this, and all of a sudden he has pulled the rug out from under us to remind us that. Yes, the stakes of this are literally life and death. This is not quite the caper film that you thought it was. Yep. Yeah, I like that. Yeah, so so we're we're in the final stretch here, which we touched on a little bit. Um, does, are there kind of particular moments that stuck out to you guys in these? Five? I mean, I, the thing that I joked about on Letterboxd after I watched the movie a couple of weeks ago was just that uh, 
this is the movie that makes me always buy new luggage. Um, <laughs> like, yeah, just because like, as soon as he's stuffing that thing closed, I'm just like, D- dude, you got to spend a little bit more. <laughs> and that's one of those things that always gets me in a heist movie is, is when you see them just dumping money in a bag and half it's falling to the floor and you're like, yeah. oh, come on, be careful with that. Don't let it fall on the floor. You need all of it. And he's stuffing it in that bag. I'm, I'm like, I'm in my head. I'm going, why didn't you just put the bag in the luggage? The money would, it all would have fit. <laughs> like, why are you making this harder? I can yeah, see, that, I can see that argument, but I also see that pointing out to us that it's starting to come unraveled at this point. Mm-hmm. He has planned everything so meticulously right. up to now. And this is the first serious indication even really telegraphing it, not that you wouldn't have known before. I mean, we knew from the opening scene how this was all going to go down. Sure. But if you had any doubt prior to that pawn shop suitcase, this erases any lingering doubt that you might have that this thing is going to work out. Yeah, and it makes sense. I mean, he thought he would have one-fifth of that amount of money, so he, he didn't prepare for having that much money. Um, so he had to buy a new suitcase. Um, uh, so, uh, yeah, but I, I do think, yeah, the stuffing it in is just like that moment where, yeah, you realize, uh, things are out of control and he's, he's such a, um, I mean, I guess in the, in a sense, he's, he's the, the narrative itself and, you know, that calm fluid, like he's always just sort of the steady hand of this. He is the clock, the clockmaker of the group and, um, this is his shaky POV cam moment of just like, I just got to get this stuff in here and get the hell out of here before more things go wrong. Yeah, you can see that he's, uh, it has gone wrong. And now he doesn't know what to do because now his plans are going out the window. And so he starts making poor decisions. You know, the fact that he went into that pawn shop to buy a shitty old suitcase, the biggest one he could find instead of two small ones or something more, you know, if he had a moment of clarity to think things through properly, he probably could have gotten two small ones and split it up between him and Faye. But because he's just now no longer, he's off his plan, and now he's just left dangling trying to improvise. He doesn't seem to be a good improviser at all because everything he does from here on out is a pretty ridiculous mistake. Um, you know, from buying the shitty suitcase to the moment that the locks don't work. You know, you can't stop at another place and buy another suitcase. You have $2 million in that bag. Just, you know, oh, the locks don't work. Well, fuck it. I'm just going to go. I'm just going to go anyway. <laughs> you know, I don't care. Um, you know, that would be one of those things where you'd be kind of have to, like, slow it down and, you know, figure it out properly and get it done the right way. But uh, he's... Uh, He's off that, you know. Yeah, well, what's one? the difference, right? Yeah, I mean, exactly. That, what's the difference at this point, you know? So, yeah, no, it's a, it's interesting just to, in you, you as the audience who have now seen what happens when things go wrong are now watching him and just, like, shaking your head, saying, no, no, come on, man, don't do that, <laughs> don't do that. And as soon as you see that dog and she goes, yeah, you want to go out on the tarmac and you can see your husband come in on his plane – like oh no, that dog's gonna <laughs> that little dog's gonna ruin everything. <laughs> I think we've covered all the moments that I like. I just wanted to bring up one thing that we kind of skipped over and go back to. 
if we ever start a band, I want to name it the Academy of Chess and Checkers. <laughs> I like that is a great place. I wish those types of places existed uh, still to this day. My favorite was it was it, you know it's the Academy of Chess and Checkers, but you know for ten cents an hour you can also play Scrabble. <laughs> yeah, I saw that too. I, I mean, I just love like of course this guy. They, he's got to go to the Academy of Chess and Checkers for this guy. Like that that's the kind of thing that just, you know, you know as they were writing that, they were like, Oh, this is the best. This is exactly where this guy's gonna hang out. <laughs> yeah. This is where our muscle's gonna be hanging yeah. out at the Academy of Chess and Checkers, badgering two guys for not playing the game the right way. <laughs> Hulking over them like a bully. Yeah, the Academy of Chess and Checkers, it's so good. So I I you know, I, I think uh as we've worked our way through the movie we've we've touched on a lot of this, but I guess in terms of how this movie fits into kind of noir history, you know, outside of Kubrick's filmography, um, Cole, you know, obviously you've, you've watched quite a number of these, um, and you, you've been to the noir city, is that what it's called? The mm -hmm. noir fest and things like that. I, I'm wondering if you feel like, you know, uh, taking out the fact that this is a Kubrick movie, kind of what this offers, um, to the genre we're on we're on kind of the tail end of the classic run of the genre here in terms of time time wise you know people usually um say it, it the 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 original run of noir wrapped up around the mid 50s to late 50s um do you feel like there's things here that uh the move that the movie offers to the genre or movement or whatever you want to call noir um yeah. that that kind of enrich the, the movement as a whole. Most definitely you, like I mentioned, you have all of these players who are fantastic. The noir pedigree is just off the charts. You know, JC Flippin from they live by night, Colleen Gray, like I mentioned from all the great stuff she's done, Marie Windsor and one of my favorites ever narrow margin. They're all bringing this vast experience with the genre to bear on this one film. So even if you didn't know, that was what was going on. There is this subtle thing happening that all these people have been through this before. They know how mm. to communicate these ideas visually. There are a ton of things that fit with it because, you know, almost every major character, if you go through and watch, has either shadows of bars or literal bars in front of them at some point, foreshadowing this ending. And more than anything, the classic noir tale of foolproof plan undone by human frailty if nothing else it is a linchpin idea in the genre so i think it's a huge part of the noir landscape i think it's probably like travis said top 15 of all time maybe yeah for sure i mean there's yeah and for once for once it's not it's not one person's weakness that's exploited for the failure it is, it is a complete act of uh, just it going off the rails. It's a complete like, uh, oh man, be because it's it's you know usually in a noir movie it's 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 one person's like great weakness or that thing that they can't get over that ends up being their undoing. And in this one, it's not one person's weakness. It is it is just a complete lack of 
preparedness for something to go wrong, and which I guess is hubris. It would be their undoing because they all think that they've got this thing in the bag, and then that's when the rug is pulled out from underneath them, which I which I find to be like an interesting way of going about this. You know, it's not like there's something that Sterling Hayden did that ends up coming back later to screw them over or something like that. But I guess it's it's letting what's her face go. But at the same time, I mean, he was on to them before he was on to them before they let her go because he was, you know, they were outside parked behind the first meeting, uh, outside watching the building. So they were going to be there no matter what. Um, but yeah, no, it's a, it definitely falls in there. And then isn't, I might be mistaken, but isn't uh, Criss Cross like kind of like an unofficial sequel to this or something? Is the Burt Lancaster I mean? film? No, yeah, no. I mean, I might, I might be confusing my movies. Yeah, I don't know that. I actually don't know that movie. The one where he's a uh, he drives for the uh, he drives the uh, vaulted car. Um, You're thinking maybe of Armored Car Robbery. Chris Cross yes. is with Ava Gardner. It's a different okay. story. Okay, I'm confusing my uh, I'm confusing my movies. <laughs> Armored Car Robbery is amazing, by the way. If you want to talk about noir era classic heist films, yeah, I think that's probably what you're thinking of, and it fits snugly into this genre. And I'd recommend everybody see that one. That one is fantastic. Do you guys think that that Kubrick picked this uh, this story for sort of commercial reasons, in the sense of you know he had just made a uh, kind of noirish, uh, low budget picture. Um, and you know, knew that, uh, you know, it was marketable at the time. It was a, it was a popular genre, um, for that era. Um, or do you think it was a situation where from an artistic perspective, he really felt like this was something where he could put his stamp on this particular style of story? I think it's a little bit of both because clearly with all of the chess metaphors and how chess looms large in this entire story and him being almost more of a strategist as much as an auteur, there's definitely that room for him to do that. If he's coming from killer's kiss that he just made and he essentially gets what was it? Six to eight times the budget that he was allowed on that previous film thinking, okay, well I can just do that, but a lot better this time. Right. I don't know that he's necessarily that tied to a single genre or type of story, because when you look at his filmography, it's all over the place. So I think as much as anything, it was a chance for him to exercise his artistic personality within the framework of this tale. And when you've got Jim Thompson along for the ride, you can not go wrong with that. But when you see as much of his personality as he interjects into it with all of the chess stuff, I think it's definitely the beginnings of him starting to exercise his Kubrickness for sure. Yeah, I definitely, I definitely agree with that. I think, uh, I know that one of the things that drew him to this story was its fractured narrative in terms of, uh, retelling the heist over and over again through different characters, uh, parts. Um, I think I was listening to James B. Harris talk about why they picked the book. And that was one of the things they liked is that in the book, they do the heist through each of the sub-characters 
parts, so what they're responsible for. And then you see a little bit of each of the other characters through their perspective, and then you switch to another character in their part. And they really liked that, and that was one of the things that drew them to the project because they hadn't seen anything done like that on film yet. Um, but that, you know, one of the things that probably drew him to that was it helped him be uh, making something that is more in his wheelhouse in terms of his style and personality that will, you know, he'll further develop as he moves forward in his other films. Because, you know, all he, he works in many different genres and many different themes, but all the, you know, all the films have a general core that runs through them that can be pointed directly back at him. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I agree with both of those things for sure um, that you guys said. I, I think for Kubrick, the thing that he really figured out here, you know, the thing that stuck with me in that... Um, in that uh, James Harris interview uh, was the um, the fact that he said, you know, he knew that Kubrick had wrote, directed, produced, shot, and edited his previous two films entirely himself, pretty much. Um, and he said, you know, this is, uh, as a producer, what I can offer you is the chance for you to not produce, for you to be able to focus on what you need to uh, do to, to direct. And I feel like Kubrick really took that to heart here. And like, he saw this story as a way for him to really focus on, you know, it, it was, a, it was an interesting structure and it was interesting bones and that allowed him to put his stamp on it. But I think more importantly, like it allowed him to figure out, okay, who are the people who I can surround myself with on a story like this or on my next movie, whether I actually have the budget to hire people to help me, um, who can make this go like clockwork. And, you know, he, uh, one of his talents throughout his career was finding the right cast. He all, he had an encyclopedic knowledge of actors. Um, and so he knew exactly the people that he wanted for these roles he knew the, the, um, cinematographer that he wanted and he knew Thompson would help him with dialogue because, uh, his previous dialogue had not been particularly interesting, um, particularly in killer's kiss. Um, and so that really allowed him to focus on the things that he was strong at. And I think that was something that he, you know, definitely, took to heart moving forward was knowing kind of what his strengths were and really working on those things and picking the, the projects that fit for what he wanted to do with his own job and then allowed the other people around that to fill in and let it go smoothly in that way. This is also where he began his career of taking more credit and putting other people <laughs> further down the chain of what they actually contributed were given Jim Thompson dialogue by as opposed to co-screenwriting credit, which Jim Thompson was very upset about because he co-wrote the screenplay but only got a dialogue credit. And so because of that, Kubrick gave, threw him some sort of bone on the next picture. But uh, he's famously known for doing that to people throughout the now the rest of the, his career, uh, you know, putting himself before others in terms of, uh, 
accolades and pushing people further down of like how uh, what 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 their contribution was uh, in his mind, which was lesser than his, which is uh, an interesting way to, to spend your life, I guess. Well, this does seem like the the uh, pinnacle of Thompson's film career. I mean, uh, in in that way, it's kind of a uh, you know, perfect fitting thing for Thompson that it was the kind of bane of his film career at the same time. <laughs> yeah. Um, but he, you know, he, uh, had a very kind of typical, uh, experience in Hollywood for a writer of his caliber, um, for that era. You know, I, I, I think Raymond Chandler had a little bit more success, but not much. Um, <laughs> and then you get into people, uh, you know, that, that really just, uh, f uh, flamed out completely. Um, and, uh, I think this movie, even, even as he sort of never forgave Kubrick for that credit, like he, he, I think he knew that the, the movie worked, but also that like, I mean, they did continue to work uh, together. He threw him a bone on paths of glory, but he also, uh, worked with him on other projects that didn't end up happening, um, and, uh, continue to kind of, uh, have a, uh, not necessarily a friendship, but a relationship moving forward. Um, and, uh, yeah, it's, it's kind of an interesting, uh, quirk in that sense, because, you know, if Kubrick, who knows if he had been unable to get Paths of Glory off the ground, or if he had, uh, had some unfortunate accident happen to him after this movie, this might be known more as a Jim Thompson movie than as a Kubrick movie. Um, because I do think his stamp is very apparent, uh, on the, on the, uh, the dialogue and the, and the, the, the plot in general, the, the differences uh, from the book. I agree. I think that's a, that's a very valid point. I think this, if Kubrick didn't move forward in his career or he flamed out right after this, I think that's definitely, it's, it would have been known for being a Jim Thompson project. Like, cause you know, his, his story moves on and his uh, legend grows, uh, in terms of his writing, um, and how he's remembered. And I think this would have been one of those curios that we pulled out to say, yeah, this was something written by Jim Thompson in the Hollywood heyday. Um, so Cole, we, we, uh, we're, as we go through these movies, we are, um, ranking them, uh, within Kubrick's filmography. Uh, so, and it's, it's been pretty, uh, not suspenseful so far. <laughs> <laughs> um, and I think, uh, it's probably going to continue to be not suspenseful. Correct me if I'm wrong, Travis, but I think this is, is probably going to be number one on both of our lists at this point. You know, it, it definitely, uh, it definitely beats uh, killer's kiss and, uh, it definitely beats uh, fear and desire by a country mile. <laughs> have you seen uh, fear and desire Cole? I have not, unfortunately, or fortunately, I guess, depending on how you guys are describing <laughs> it here. It, yeah. It's, it, it's, it's worth it to kind of yeah. like see a very young fumbling, Stanley Kubrick trying to make something way too pretentious and arty for his own good. Yeah. I think killer's kiss is definitely, uh, a, a good movie. Um, but this is, this is where he becomes sort of, um, an exceptional director, uh, particularly for his age. Um, you know, he was only in his late twenties when he made this movie. So, 
um, he's definitely um, getting right into uh, the prime of his career. Um, any final words on the killing from either one of you guys? Well, if I'm just going to rank it with this and Killer's Kiss, oh, obviously yeah, sure. this is number one. Yeah. <laughs> but if I'm going to, since I won't be here probably yeah, go for, for the vast majority of these, I would rank it probably at the top of the middle batch. For me, it would come after Strange Love, after 2001, probably after Lolita, but it would be right in that next batch with Paths of Glory and The Shining. Full Metal Jacket, I go back and forth on, but I like it considerably better than Spartacus, Eyes Wide Shut, and I still have not seen Barry Lyndon, so that one's on me. Oh, wow. You are in for a treat in a couple weeks. I can't wait. I've been sitting on it. I have this stored away. When I, we had that interview, speaking of Eddie Muller, Eddie Muller talked about this idea that he s sets movies aside and people think he's crazy all the time when he says, I haven't seen this milestone thing, but he's saving it. He mm. wants to still have a really big, great surprise in store when he sits down to watch it one day rather than rushing through an entire filmography or taking on a film when you're not ready. So that's kind of how I'm thinking about Barry Lyndon right now. I've got it set aside, waiting for a special occasion, but I can't wait to see it because every still I've ever seen of it, especially with the new restorations, looks incredible. Yeah, it's yeah. gonna be uh, it's gonna be something else. I I did that uh, earlier this year with Stalker. Um, saw it at the Brattle for the first time in the new restoration. I was holding off because the prints were so notoriously poor. Um, and I, I definitely did not regret that for a second. So I, you, you are definitely in for a treat and, uh, you probably made the right decision. I did that recently with out of the past. I've always wanted to see it and it was one of those ones that was definitely on the list, but I kind of been putting it off, putting it off because I wanted to make it something special. And I got to see it at the Brattle as well in a 35 millimeter print. It was great. Since you won't be along for the rest of the ride, Cole, do you, do you have a, a personal favorite of those ones that you mentioned of, of Kubrick's films? Of all of them, I would put Strange Love at the top. I just love how bitter and incisive and hilarious <laughs> that movie is. It's probably one of the top 10 comedies on my list of all time. I love that movie. And again, another facet of Sterling Hayden being so self-aware to play that character so well that that guy is just a riot he could do no wrong as far as i was concerned yeah he's nice. he's amazing in that movie um it probably um my favorite performance in that film uh as a as a preview for when we get to, to strange love but uh um yeah he's he's i just never stop laughing at, at his <laughs> at his speech uh in the middle of the uh of the fluoride Nice. And it ties well with this one. A bunch of impotent men who uh, plans go horribly wrong. There you go. Yes, with a <laughs> bit more of an explosive ending than, than this one. All right. Well, uh, this was fun. Uh, Cole, thank you so much for uh, for coming in and talking The Killing with us. Uh, it was a pleasure to have uh, a big uh, noir nut like you. And uh, um, yeah, thank you so much. Oh, it's my pleasure. I really appreciate you guys inviting me along. And yeah. Erica says hi. 
Erica. Yes, we want to get Erica on as well. So tell her uh, that uh, that we'll be, I'll be in touch because that would be uh, really fun to have her on for one of these too. Okay, we'll do. And uh, Travis, next week we will be doing our next the next episode. I don't know if it'll be next week, but we'll be doing uh, Paz of Glory. Are you excited? I'm getting getting my German Kaiser helmet on, ready to rock. All right, I'm gonna go uh, listen to a uh, a sad lady sing a song and, and feel bad about heckling her. <laughs> I'm gonna eat some cold mutton in a barn somewhere. <laughs> All right, well, thanks cool. so thanks much, for hanging guys. out, buddy. I appreciate it. Anytime.